Welcome to the Wonders of Thetis podcast, your one-stop shop for all your Dragon Age role-playing game needs. My name is Ren. And I'm Jessica. Welcome back to episode 46, although I guess it'll probably be the first time you're here if you're listening to it for the first time. But welcome yeah. back to the Wonders of Thetis. We've got a big one for you today. This is pretty important. This is going to be a cool one. Uh, we, of course, had another poll for the next topic of the episode, and of course, as usual, I introduced one topic that blew all the others out of the water. It was not a very big surprise exactly which one won this one. Uh, today we're talking about crafting adventures in Dragon Age. Woo! Mm-hmm. And other age games, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, you all seem very excited to hear about it. We're very excited to talk about it. we got lots to get into today, so we're going to jump straight into everything. Uh, first, a quick shout-out to our fellow podcasters on the D20 Radio Network. Uh, the movie defenders are reviewing the new Ghostbusters movie, uh, but their show comes with a twist. One of them is not going to be defending the movie because they didn't like it. Uh, they, they're they going to have a dialogue on the show, and they're going to try to convince this person that the movie is good. I, I've not seen it, but I've heard yeah. on, only rave reviews from the people I know who have seen it. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen it myself either, so probably shouldn't listen to that particular episode. Just Until yet. we've seen it ourselves. Yes. But that sounds like a nice, interesting way to go about it. And it sounds like they're going to have a celebrity guest on at some point for that show. So, very curious to see how that goes. That sounds pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. Good on you folks. Uh, and The Knights of Ren, a podcast about the Star Wars Destiny card dice game, will be talking about whether Destiny is a game that can be played on a budget, which is a very good conversation for a game about, uh, for a trading card game. Yes. Also, we like it because it sounds like you have knights. It does. It sounds like I have knights of my own. So thank you, Knights of Ren Podcast, for vindicating me, specifically, <laughs> who has the name Ren. Spelled slightly different, but we're here now. Uh, it's so, a good story. Good story. Good stories had all around. Uh, speaking of stories, yeah. we've got some important stories to bring up this week in Thetis. You aren't worried I'll just make it up as I go? Not at all. You'll need to hear the whole story. Welcome to This Week in Thetis. We've got lots of news to share with you this time around. Uh, For the next, as of this episode coming out, should be about 10, 11 days. Uh, The Bundle of Holding is selling Adventure Game Engine PDFs for super cheap. Now, for just 10 bucks, you can get Fantasy Age's basic core rulebook, The Bestiary, and three short adventures for Fantasy Age games. Uh, if you pay at least, uh, by my last calculation, or uh, calculation by which I mean uh, opening up Your the webpage to take yeah. a look at it, it might have changed by now. Uh, when I last checked, it was $24.64. It goes up as more folks, uh, ooh, twenty four sixty five. 65 Of course, as of it. recording this podcast, it's going to start going up. Um, let's see, but if you pay at least that much, you will also get a PDF of the Dragon Age Core Rulebook. Titan's Grave, The Ashes of Volcana, Blood and Ferelden with three low-level Dragon Age adventures, the Dragon Age Game Master's Kit, and the Fantasy Age Game Master's Kit, which they apparently which they have added recently after so after we goodness they're already up to a 952 bundles sold, and they've already made well over twenty three thousand dollars. And um, you might be wondering why we're bringing that up is because ten uh, percent of your payment is going to go to the Maria Fund which is an organization that is working to help Puerto Rico rebuild after Hurricane Maria. So this is pretty much, in every possible way, an excellent choice. Yes. It's a great deal for you, the Mm -hmm. stuff is great, and the cause is exceptionally important. Yes. Everybody wins from this, so you should definitely go check out the bundle of holding. We'll have the link in our blog post, and we'll try and, and we've uh, made the link available in most of our social media. So if you've been on there, you've probably already found this. But for those of you who, uh, we're gonna go ahead and signal boost it again. We'll be putting it on our blog post for this particular episode. So go check it out. Get all of this stuff for super cheap. Uh, and in addition, for those of you who are uh, going to buy and stuff. Uh, The Fantasy Age Companion book is now available for pre-order for physical books. You can buy the PDF right away. And if you pre-order the physical copy, you can also buy the PDF for five bucks. 
uh, along with it. That's pretty exciting. Pretty so. cool stuff. If you've got I, some money burning a hole in your pocket, these are some good ways and, to spend it. Right. If you give like, if you spend like what, fifty bucks right now, you can get like well over a hundred dollars worth of junk. Oh yeah. And really Easily. good junk. Honestly, that's well over a hundred dollars worth of junk in the twenty four sixty five. Like it's true. Yeah, even if you don't get it. That's an incredible amount of stuff for that money. Go get it and play some Dragon Age. And help some people. Yeah, and help some people. So, cool news. Let's talk about some uh, questions that have been brought to our attention by consulting our codex. You can ask me questions if you like. I'm not sure why you'd want to, but... Oh, good. Thank you. I'm going to regret this, aren't I? Welcome to the Codex. We've got lots to talk about today because we've got lots of submissions these days, hmm. uh, especially from a couple of you who have been who have been very generous with the hmm. questions that Prolific are on our docket. Even. Prolific, even. We love it. Keep uh, going. We're gonna go ahead and get straight to uh, one of our more prolific uh, question askers in the in the most uh, recent weeks is Mark Natris. Uh, thank you again, uh, th- Mark Natris. Asks a couple questions through our Facebook page. Let's get right to them. How, how lethal do you make this dark fantasy setting? Uh, it's Dragon Age, so... Uh, fairly? Fairly. It should be fairly lethal because it is dark, and the court rulebook even says that you should probably have your players expect their characters to potentially die. Yep. Have so, backups. Yeah. You should, it's, it's, they, the core rulebook says it's wise to have backups. So. It has been literally just... Good fortune at this point that hasn't cost one of like the three characters. Well, four because uh, we had mm. a comeback recently. We did, yeah. But uh, the characters remaining in the Dragon Age campaign, it is nothing short of miraculous that they've survived as far That's as true. they have in our in our long term campaign. Mm-hmm. Like this, we should have died a long time ago. Characters I don't think frequently make it to twenty in Dragon Age. You folks have been fighting very hard, very long. That's some very fortunate dice rolls at the exact mm-hmm. right moment. It's true. So. so it's so honestly, it should be as lethal as you want it to be, but it is a dark. It is Dragon Age. It is a mm-hmm. dark fantasy game. People are probably going to die, especially yeah. if folks make poor decisions. Death should always be present mm-hmm. and a possibility. It should be a looming specter. Uh, which, of course, I guess comes to your next question, was how how lethal should you make this dark fantasy setting? Death should be a looming specter. Yep. There you go. Um, Tell a good story, but exactly. make sure that the fact that the characters can die is something that can be written into mm-hmm. the story. Like, up, up through our entire... We just completed the majority of that campaign. Like, we have a little silly epilogue to do. Yes. But throughout that entire campaign, death was very real possibility. Mm-hmm. We, as we got better at the game, we tended to be able to take care of ourselves a bit more effectively. But death has always been a thing that we've known as could have happened. Like, these characters could have died at any time. It's true. How many times did Callian go down in that fight in the Tevinter Parade? Oh my god. <laughs> and kept coming back up because you cast uh, Rejuvenation on her. Got her yeah. just enough hit points she could remain conscious. Is that the Eyes on the Prize one? That was the Eyes on the Prize day. Yeah, I, that was one where I really thought she was going to bite it because mm-hmm. she threw herself off a ledge and had 11 hit points when she did it. Yep. Yeah. And she was, she made herself an absurd acrobatics test but still ended up like dying on the ground. Yep. And that was the time that I made the like 16 that I needed to get out of uh, the, get out of the, the paralysis around. effect yeah. and heal her in time so she could get back up. Oof, it was mean. That was close. Like, that would have, if you hadn't, if I hadn't made that check, mm-hmm. that likely would have been a dead Callion. Then again, been... if we talked about every time if something hadn't happened, it would be a dead Callion, we would be here for hours. We would have a whole podcast episode about that. The rest of us have really had fewer brushes with death. It's true. Things have generally gone for the warrior and the rogue first, so the mages usually stayed in the back away from harm. Um, and the warrior has just been really dang hard to kill. Yeah. She's, she's just... She's pretty hard she's to mess with. thick. Um, so, uh, next question was, uh, what's your preferred method with regards to ability generation at character creation? 
and all of them have their benefits and drawbacks. Mm-hmm. Um, option one, of course, the, the normal option is to roll all of your abilities in sequence and then swap two at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, is generally good for newer folks or for folks who don't necessarily know what's a good choice right out of the gate. So you can just get them a character on the sheet and get started right away. Um, that's honestly, quick and dirty. Yeah, I I like that one, but my favorite personally would be that with the twist. Mm-hmm. Which is... If the points that the character has mm-hmm. do not add up to 10 total, like within mm-hmm. the entire set, or 12 if you're going for a bit more high-powered mm-hmm. campaign, if you don't add up to that number, then either you get to re-roll your stat block, yes. or you get to add a number of points to make it equivalent to 10, yes, or 12, whichever you're going for. Mm-hmm. It's true. I like that. Now, usually, as we've seen in this... Uh, in the early, like, as I recall, our creating characters episode, mm-hmm. I said something about how, you know, I was rolling up a character on here and I could write, I could read the character in binary. Yeah, that was a so problem. So some of us do have some pretty bad luck with the rolls. So for those people, sometimes there are some better options, but I don't mm-hmm. know. I kind of like the chance. Uh, the second, the first optional way being that you roll all of your abilities and then place them wherever you want them to be, which is nice. It's also quick and dirty, but gives you a bit more control. And then, of course, the option that has full total control is all of your abilities start at zero. You get ten advancements to bring them all up. You can't raise them above three, mm-hmm. uh, which is which it gives you the most control. Um, and thankfully, the system is pretty simplistic, so you generally not have a lot of trouble. Uh, letting folks know what's a good idea to boost. Yeah. Doesn't allow for much min-maxing either. It's true. Once it, if it caps it at three, then... And it doesn't allow you to go below zero. Yes, you can't like trade we, points out to get more. We, we've had some people with negative one magic, for, for example. Mm-hmm. Like, Who have really needed those anti-magic board spells. You're welcome. It's true. Need them pretty bad. But uh, it's... I think that both have their benefits, both have their drawbacks. Yeah. For a long-term campaign, I'm kind of more a fan of the rolling just because you're more likely to get sort of a special snowflake. And isn't that kind of what you're going for? Right, exactly. You want someone who's a bit of a, you know, a cut above. Mm-hmm. So, I'm cool either way, but... I have toyed with the idea of, like, particularly exciting or epic campaigns where you give them, like, 12, 14 advancements to spend. And mm-hmm. or maybe increase the cap from three to four. Which oh yeah, could or be fun. One option as well. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to do like a more a, a game that had a higher chance of higher stats, mm-hmm. you could sort of swap out the traditional D and D rules, which is the roll four d six, drop the lowest, mm-hmm. which tends to result in slightly higher numbers. Yes, it does. Worth keeping in mind. A lot of stuff to do. Um, so many choices. Yeah, I think we ended up answering a couple more of your questions, Mark. Mm-hmm. Um, second, your next question was uh, when using the standard method, how does your group's stats come out? And is that the rolling one? Yeah, yeah, that was usually the comically one. badly, but yeah, that, especially no, that's if me. you're rolling. Every now except and then, something for, good happens. Except for your PC for the main for the yep, main campaign, you rolled time. absurdly well for it's her. The only time that's ever happened, though, we know that you ended with a We've magic. With, you that. ended with a magic of nine. But that was you know, technically it was a native seven. Yes, but relevant to the to the generation, usually I see subpar. Like we all, I think all three of us, mm-hmm. when creating characters that weren't the ones for this game, yeah, have had to re-roll the sets because we regularly will get under ten. Mm-hmm. So, but then this is just kind of a bad luck house. So <laughs> sometimes it is. Um. Your next question, of course, was what do you think of the house, what is this house rule? Roll stats down the line and swap two, then get extra points to bring you a uh, total value up to ten. Oh. We like it. Oh. Hey, great minds. Great minds. You didn't read ahead. No. I thought you were reading ahead. I was not. I was just talking. <laughs> I mean, there we go. So I guess that one's got our seal of approval. Nice yeah. house rule. So yeah. I mean, good on you. Making finger guns at the microphone right now. Mm-hmm. Great minds think alike. Good job. Uh, guys. Last question from Mark that we are going to answer today because I think I still have at least a dozen from Mark uh, sitting on our docket right now. Mm. Um, uh, we'll get to the, them. Yes, 
on the rapid reload stunt, does it work with crossbows? If so, shouldn't it cost one or more, one or two more stunt points? Maybe the same price as lightning attack if they're both major actions. Um, and I, I think that they should keep it exactly the way it is. Uh, with crossbows, crossbows deal more damage than bows, but because they require a major action to fire, uh, a major action to fire and a major action to reload them, it means that you have a very, very slow firing rate. Yeah, this. This, I agree. I feel like rapid reload working for them is just a nice boosty, and it's not overpowered in that it's not reliable. Correct. You it's can't not... always do it. Exactly. It's definitely not reliable that you're going to get... I mean, you only need one stunt point to do it, so yeah. when you do roll stunts, you're going to be able to do it, but you, you can't rely on that. Yeah. Honestly, in my opinion, it still doesn't make crossbows worth it. Action economy-wise, mm -hmm. it just doesn't. Once you get to the journeyman degree of archery, then it does become a bit more worth it because they become minor actions to reload instead of yes. majors. Um, but bows, by that point, then cost a free action to reload. Still, yes. Bows are pretty, still superior. Pretty solid. Uh, crossbows, you know, I think they're cool. And there's a really cool magical one in uh, Etsy in the core book. They're cool, but they're just objectively not as good mechanically. <laughs> it's disappointing. You gotta work at it. You gotta work at it. Let's see. Um, so thank you, Mark. Thank you for all the questions. We appreciate it. Yeah, Keep them coming. Thank you, actually. Uh, next question comes from our good friend Parcival on the Green Running Forums. Yay. Hey, Toby. How's it going? What's up? Um, and here's a, you had a good one today. Uh, I would value your thoughts on one of my ideas. As you know, I do like to add as many elements from the computer games as I can, as I believe it helps evoke the atmosphere of Thetis. I have been thinking about introducing what are termed cross-class combos to my campaign. What do you think of the following example? If an enemy fails a test against a Winter's Grasp spell, and the mage that cast it has a master level in primer and the primer and the primal magic talent, then a warrior with master level in two-handed style can deal an extra d6 of damage of landing a blow with the critical damage stunt, which I assume you meant mighty blow or lethal blow. It sounds a bit complicated, but I think it won't happen often and will be memorable when it does. The great thing about Dragon Age system is that it is so simple to modify. I don't view my addition as unbalancing, just a bit flavorful. What do you think? Um, I think as a, like, it would definitely need to be a bit more structured out like mm -hmm. and plotted out. Yes. As a concept, I love it. Yes. I'm a big fan of the uh, Tales of games, and mm -hmm. one of the big things that they do in those games are these things called unison attacks. Yeah. And that's, you know, attacks where everybody gets together and works together to make some big fancy attack go off. And I feel like this is a great example of that. It promotes more teamwork, so it's yeah. always it's a good thing. And it's just a little bit anime, so I'm just a little bit down anime. for it. Heck yeah. Um, now, the cross-class combos originally showed up in Dragon Age 2, uh, and they were usually status conditions that you would apply to an enemy after you'd upgraded a certain ability in a specific way. So it would apply, like, the brittle con Like, Winter's Grasp would apply the brittle condition. Um, and if a warrior had, if a warrior or a rogue had an ability that was upgraded so that it could exploit brittle, mm -hmm. it would deal an absurd amount of damage to them. Um, and then I think warriors could add, like, staggered, and then rogues could add stunned, and the other classes would have abilities that would get a huge damage boost when they exploited that. And uh, honestly, let's see, the rogues already got something like the stun, like got the, the, the stunning attack, which works mm. very well with other rogues, but I could definitely see something working with other, with the other classes. Mm -hmm. um, although this would definitely need to be something that would be plotted out. Yes. Uh, because this is, because the, you then you'd of course have to define, you know, like what spells allow, create what conditions. Um, yeah, it do would warriors create... need to like perform, you need to generate stunt points in order to, uh, to exploit yeah. them. Is it maybe you could introduce it as like a talent that all classes get? Yeah, it's. Uh, I think that it will add a significant amount of complexity to the game. That mm -hmm. you know, a game that's not really designed for a great deal of complexity. But that said, I could see a number of tables who would be super down, super down I think, for this. I think this could be. A, if you make it work, I think it could be a lot of fun. So, uh, answer your question. We like it. Mm -hmm. If you write it up, we will definitely put it on the Dissonant Verses, and I will greatly consider putting it in my next Dragon Age campaign. Yeah, let us know. We're we're excited. We're yeah. interested. So thank you, Parcival. Toby, we appreciate it, as always. Uh, next questions come from Drunkle Grog through our email. Any advice on running a Dragon Age 2-style game where you make time jumps forward and the characters have had time to develop their PCs without direct action? Um, I, I think it's cool. We've done it before in other campaigns. 
And um, I think one of the things that I pointed out, uh, especially with time skips, um, was the concept of retraining. And, yes. Because um, I, I, your character has a bit more time to refine themselves, but they're not necessarily going on adventuring and getting new ability and like becoming more powerful. So maybe they, you can use that downtime to shift their focus. Yeah, maybe learn different spells. Or uh, if the maybe switch like talents, the, yeah, like the build that you've got is either not working or maybe it's a little boring. and You want to try something new, so when a time skip comes along, you can have the character adjust themselves. Maybe, maybe uh, dual weapon style just wasn't working for them, so they want to try two handed style or pole arm style, or uh, or maybe they want to keep dual arm style, uh, dual hand style, but maybe they grabbed two handed style so that they could be a switch hitter and they're not really using it much, so they could switch it out for like unarmed style punch things or mages could maybe uh restudy and maybe swap out spells that they that they're yeah. qualified maybe for realize and... that walking bomb is terrifying and then pick something else pick something more wholesome that spell is scary <laughs> that spell is weird it should be entropy but it's still spirit magic man what's going on here more reasons to take spirit though spirit is awesome Incidentally, if you haven't listened to our last, again, I think it was like ever. a couple episodes ago, and uh, m- most of the episodes before that. Um, let's see. Uh, with time skips, you do need to make sure that the players know what has happened, how long it's been, and what they can get away with in that time skip because mm-hmm. they'll want to know. Also, where have the be- where have the characters been? What have they been doing? They didn't cease to exist, presumably. Right. So. Other than the mechanical aspects, what are some of the flavor things that might have happened to those PCs, and how is that going to impact how they are played? Because mm-hmm. that stuff will come up. Uh, the players will I will definitely ask a lot of questions about the time skip, so be prepared to answer a lot of questions about the time skip. Let's see. Uh, what about letting the PCs exist in parallel with Hawked friends? How would you guide them to be part of Dragon Age without railroading? We kind of do it already. Um, you sort of the easiest thing to do is give them a different playground. Yes, exactly. If they're going to be, you know, even within the same timeline as the characters, if they're somewhere else doing other stuff, then they're not going to cross wires, or yeah. the streams aren't going to cross. And if you want to include them, then that's perfectly fine. You'll want to um, probably think about if you've got like a timeline in mind. If you're going to use your save file from Dragon Age, um, what decisions that hawk might and see that hawk or that uh inquisitor or that hero for Elden might make that would be uh that maybe it would be influenced uh by the actions of the pcs or maybe the pcs are working against them heaven forbid say maker forbid so it would be uh it's there are definitely i guess instead of railroading you'd want to create kind of like a timeline like um, what this, what Hawk or the Warden or the Inquisitor would do if they were not being impeded by the heroes or not being joined by the heroes. Yeah. Either way, be expect if you're going to have them sort of able to interact, like mm-hmm. if they are going to possibly exist in the same place at the same time, mm-hmm. expect Canon to get a little wobbly. Yes, wibbly wobbly, timey wimey stuff. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Gonna have to be ready for that because it will. The questions will be raised, and some players may decide to test how far they can push stuff. As they are want to do. It's true. At least they have a lot of fun with it. Uh, so thank you, Drunkle Grog. Hope that helps. Feel free to ask follow-up questions if it mm-hmm. didn't. Uh, next questions come from Ruben Colpert, uh, who asked, I believe, through our Facebook page. Let's see. Oh, I'll actually ask through a different Facebook page. I answered a couple questions, and then they posted them on our Facebook page. Okay. Um, so, Ruben. Ruben, your questions were, when mages cast spells, do they actually have to speak up magical words, and if so, is mumbling an option? Or can it all happen with just thinking about the spell? In other words, when a mage's mouth is tight shut, is she still able to cast spells? What about Arcane Lance? Um, Arcane Lance specifically requires a staff or a wand. Yeah. You have to have something to shoot it from. Yeah. But the others, I believe, have no necessary, specifically necessary material components mm-hmm. or somatic or verbal components. Yeah. I don't think you need to say anything. Like, I mean, uh, like... the example I'm thinking of is mm-hmm. in the, was it Dawn of the Seeker? 
Mm-hmm. That the name of the super awesome movie yeah, about, about Cassandra. Cassandra. Yeah. yeah, where the little elven girl of Exus is, you know, calling spoiler creatures <laughs> and is doing so just kind of by staring off into space and having being heavily <laughs> doctored up. Glow. Also that. But yeah, so things that are clearly doable without any sort of verbal or somatic component. Mm-hmm. So it makes me think that, well, I imagine that there are certain, maybe there are certain types that do, and I've, I mean, we've seen a number of mages in and out of games who like sort of do hand motions and mm-hmm. stuff, but seeing as even in the games we've never heard any incantations, Yeah, it sounds like you don't really need them. Yeah, and I mean, so I've seen, covered, still uh, you also see the example of, um, especially in Dragon Age 2, when you're uh, dealing with the Kunari all the time, you come across uh, a couple of, oh my god, what are Kunari mages called? Dangerous things. Sarabas, yes. Uh, when you deal with a couple of Sarabas, you have them casting spells at you, but they've got, but I mean, they've they've got their mouths sewn shut, they've got blinders so they can't see as much. Which... Um, Begs the question, why are their mouths sewn shut if they don't need them for magic? The Canary are probably just that terrified. Jeez. Rude. Uh, I could see maybe, like, voice or words maybe making it easier to cast spells. Like, let's see, kind of like um, how it makes it easier. How, you know, like some phrases might make it easier for you to recall something. Mm. But yeah, you, you never really, yeah. like, all of the casters that you work with, you don't ever really hear mm-hmm. them. And these Gunari who have their mouths sewn shut and have uh, and have the blinders on, they uh, they usually seem to be perfectly capable of casting their spells. Maybe they should stop putting blinders on people and stitching their mouths up mm. like a bunch of jerks. Um, let's see. Your ne- and uh, your next question was, uh, if words or sounds are not necessary, what about movement? If a mage is bound to a pole, can she cast spells? What if the mage is blinded? In the case of the target needs to be visible, would a mage still be able to cast something like rock armor? Perhaps with some negative modifiers. And um, I think my answer to this was, for me, if I was running it, I would say that a mage needs to not have their hands bound so that they Mm -hmm. can, like, point the spell at something with their hands. That said, specifically for the spell that you mentioned, Mm -hmm. I would argue that if their hands are able to touch their body Mm -hmm. in some way, like if their hands are tied to their sides, Mm -hmm. I would argue that they could cast rock armor specifically. Mm Mm-hmm. I can see that. Because they're in contact with the target. Yes. But, yeah, I think it's a large amount of can you direct your hands towards mm-hmm. where the magic needs to go. Because if yes. you cannot, then probably not. There's no rule for it mechanically. Rules is written. Is... They can just cast no matter what. But yeah. I think that's a reasonable mm-hmm. I think it's line a reasonable to draw thing. in the sand. Mm-hmm. And, of course, plenty of spells claim that you have to have a visible target. So, obviously, if the mage has, like blinders on their faces or like just straight up heavy masks in front of their faces or maybe just are blinded by something they probably they can't aim the spells so i guess the spells couldn't happen well i feel like it's not too dissimilar to things that happen in like pathfinder and D. Mm-hmm. if there's one that you need to have a specific target for mm-hmm. like if it's designed to work on a single target then yeah that's not yeah. going to work but something if like it's a like a fire blast. if it's like an inferno or something mm-hmm. just you point in a direction and say, yeah, that just, far away is yeah, now fire. about over there is going to be made of fire for now. Like, mm-hmm. that's still, I think, totally doable as long as you've got the hands to yeah. do it. Um, if you wanted to know mechanically how to adjudicate that, I would probably say maybe uh, look at, maybe have them make the casting roll as usual, but look at the dragon die result, and then higher dragon die result means greater accuracy. And I would also say any character that is regularly blind, like mm-hmm. that does not normally use vision to get around, would probably yeah. be able to target using their other senses just fine. Sounds good to me. Uh, last question. Uh, is the act of casting visible? Casting rock armor, for example. Or is it just meditation? Or is there some glow or something visible? Perhaps some noise. Uh, in other words, would a regular person notice it? And uh, I would. I usually say yes. Yeah, well, in, in the game as well, like... In the computer mm-hmm. game, it sort Casting of, a spell is usually quite noticeable. There's, you know, a certain amount of light and show, mm-hmm. and once you have rock armor on, people can tell because there's little rocks jumping off your body, and your yeah. body's made of rocks. Mm-hmm. Or and you're pointing at somebody, and lasers are shooting out of your hands. and It's pretty noticeable. Mm-hmm. Most magic is not subtle. I would usually say if you wanted to cast it quiet, uh, secretly, you'd probably need to be in a very loud room, and people couldn't see you. 
Yep. I've had to do some, before I got my right to cast publicly, I had to do some very discreet heal spells. Yes. So, I think that that's probably a pretty solid way to do it. Mm -hmm. It's just... Fairly reasonable. It's pretty noticeable, but it's mm-hmm. it's possible to hide it, but you're going to have to be yeah. careful. Dragon Age has never really mentioned the limitations of the active spellcasting, so honestly, whatever works for your game is the best, but those are our yeah. considerations. If going by what we've seen in the computer games as mm-hmm. well. That's how we'd run it. In video games. So, thank you for your question, Ruben. Questions? Uh, and of course, to all those of you listening out there, if you have a question about the Dragon Age RPG, whether it's mechanics, build suggestions, questions about lore, clarifications about old episodes, anything else, send a message to podcast at gmail.com, send it to us through our Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, or SoundCloud accounts, or send a personal message to Cot the Protector or Healerpuff on the Green Running forums, or send a message to Cot or Lease on the D20 radio forums. That's us. It is. Uh, we are going to be skipping the Distant Verses today. We've not got much to show just yet, and we've also got a lot to talk about anyway. Nope, so, we better get moving on to it. Mm-hmm. We've got to get moving on to that adventure, uh, which is our main topic for Shall today. Shall we venture forth? We have to gather our party before venturing forth. Is it fate or chance? Welcome to the main topic today. I, I'm yeah. pretty sure that was copyrighted material, but well, it, it's, it's, it's a refer- it's, it's parody. A, it's alliteration. It's, a, it's illusion. That's it. Yes, it's not alliteration. I mean, it, it could be if we rewrote it a little bit. But anyway, uh, today we are talking about writing adventures in Dragon Age, alliterative or not, uh, mm-hmm. and other uh, age games for that matter. That's because all honestly, most of this can be applied to just about any. Adventure creation. Uh, we'll be we'll be talking about a couple of things that are specifically age. Yes. Uh, but we'll be starting with a quick disclaimer. We are not telling you how to write your adventures. We would never do that. Yep. These are your adventures. You know exactly how to write them. Uh, you can take or leave these suggestions of ours, as there is no right way to create your adventures as long as you and your group have fun. Feel mm-hmm. free to take all of this with a grain of salt. Take some of it. Take none of it. Take all of it. Whatever you want to do. It's up to you. This is just here to help. Mm-hmm. So, what exactly are we getting into? It's a bit of a general topic. Uh, we've covered more specific things like encounter design, good narratives, creating adversaries. In episodes 13, 39, and 42, respectively. Uh, we want to try and weave them together into something that we can bring to the table. Uh, we're going to be getting into a couple of philosophical and mechanical discussions and hopefully uh, bring some info that can be used to put all these important elements together mm-hmm. to create an adventure. Um, so there are a couple questions that you need to ask yourself about the game, about your uh, about your adventure, and we'll be also be going to cover a couple of general use bits of advice. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, where you have to, you should definitely ask the question: Who are you writing this for? Because that's going to inform everything else down the line. Uh, and mixing these styles can be bad for your table if they're not co- compatible with your situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it should be very evident what you're what you're writing for. So um, it's kind of you'll probably know the answer to this question. But here are the considerations that come with each one. Um, there are usually about three kinds of adventures that you're going to write for. Uh, home campaigns which are the kind of game that everyone's going to hear stories about for years to come if you do right. Absolutely. Uh, you get some friends together, you tell them about the super cool game and the super cool campaign idea you've got, you sit them all down, grab some Cheetos and Mountain Dew, uh, or maybe some healthier things if you want to. Yes. Which we probably should. I, I do. <laughs> Mountain Dew makes you sterile. Don't drink that stuff. <laughs> wow, that was not where I was going to go. <laughs> anyway, um, but you've got friends who live close enough that you can meet regularly. You can talk about the game when you aren't playing it. Um, but this is something that you're sitting in for the long haul. That's You're here to tell a story with some friends. Yep. I love this kind. This uh, is my favorite. Yes, this is this is the kind that everybody dreams about. Everybody's getting planning on their next home campaign, and I know I've got like three of them in, in my head right now. Way more people to want to play them than you have slots. You know, or hours in the day. That too. You have to make money somehow. I have to make money somehow. Um, 
home campaigns typically have longer plots, uh, and they can be as long as the player and the GM want them, or other GMs want them to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can add more subplots and accommodate the goals of your PCs to create colorful and powerful tapestries of tales because you've got lots of time. Um, mm-hmm. Unless you have a certain pacing in mind, you don't have to make sure an adventure wraps up in a certain number of sessions. Although, if you want to, uh, that can also create a nice little pace for your game. Mm-hmm. Um, you can even have things wrap up neatly every week and make a bit of like a television episode style structure where each session is self-contained but contributes to a grand narrative. Or you could have one dungeon that you guys spend like a month trying to get through. That is very true. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, I think one of the... You said in here a minute ago that accommodating the goals of your PCs, I think that there's more to be said as far as that goes. Because Definitely. one of the huge benefits of a home campaign is that you the characters don't necessarily have to be sort of like drag and drop into the story. Yes. The story can be directly centered around these PCs. That's like, true. It can be something that is not only relevant to the PCs, but some parts of it may only be taking place because these PCs are the ones playing it. Yes. It can be literally written about these characters mm-hmm. instead of being a story where you insert various <clears throat> generic heroes. Like, yes. Not that the characters would be generic in those, but mm-hmm. more this is like a glove. Yes. It's like custom-fitted storyline. Mm-hmm. So We're getting exactly what we need out of it. So, um, now these, of course, can have uh, typically longer sessions than other campaign styles or other adventure styles, uh, anywhere from 4 to 36 hours. I don't think we've ever done that. I don't think we've ever done that. I've heard of some folks who do that, uh, who, you know, game all through the day, go to sleep, wake up, continue playing. But those those folks I've heard of also usually get to play, like, once a year. So they just take a whole weekend for it. I do remember once or twice we started at, like, 2 in the afternoon Mm -hmm. and went until, like, 5 a.m. Yeah, we've done that before. So that's, like... 21 hours, that's... still pretty... That's still... That's still much. Not 21 hours, what am I doing? I can't count. 2 p.m. to 5 a.m. I'm, I was 13? the one who had the flu, no. everybody. That was uh, 12, 15 That's hours. 15 hours. I'm so hmm. glad that we figured that out. Mm-hmm. I teach um, These are the games that can take months or even years to finish. And because you have longer sessions, your pacing can vary by the hour, and you can craft larger encounter areas with multiple rooms or scenes that tie together. Uh, and you can get to them all in a single day, and you might even run out of material to work with by in the, in the course of a session. Mm-hmm. Um, and lots of advanced planning is possible, because you're, you're going to spend plenty of time planning this, so there's lots of time for you to communicate with your players about the campaign, uh, find out the goals that they want to work with. Uh, you can have character backgrounds written ahead of time to get the heroes already involved in the adventure. Um, campaign journals will keep track of what you have already faced and what you intend to use later. Uh, and players have time to research and build their character sheets and stories. That's pretty neat. Mm-hmm. Home campaigns are pretty much the best. Yeah. Of course, the downside to a home campaign is, mm-hmm. you know, trying to get everybody to the same place at the same time. That's always an adventure. Trying to, uh, yeah, that's That's the impossible. real adventure. But, uh... And sometimes... You have my sword. And my axe. Tuesday's not good for me. Yeah, pretty much. But uh, it it's difficult, but it's worth it. And then also the fact that a lot of home campaigns tend to peter out instead mm-hmm. of finishing. It's true. Although, we've been very fortunate in that ours have all, I think, almost, not all, but most of ours have seen the conclusion of... Yes. We did stop that one Star Wars campaign. Yeah, a couple Star Wars campaigns had to kind mm-hmm. of... Stop. Mm-hmm. But other than that, we've been pretty we've fortunate. We buried our faces into Pathfinder. Yeah. And we never came up for air. I like Pathfinder. It's fun. We're having, we're still having a good time. Um, <clears throat> the next uh, type of adventure that you're going to write are uh, adventures written for events, which is typically like organized play or conventions. Uh, conventions uh, and or in organized play sessions are events that only come once or twice a year or only once a week. Uh, so you have to get as much t- into that time slot as possible before the players have to either leave for the next event or go home because yes. because the store is closing. Um, these adventures typically have self-contained plots. They start and they end in the same session. Um, they may last two or more sessions if they want to make a multi-parter uh, and... Or if they're lucky enough to get 
the same players more than once, which is not always a guarantee, especially if you're at a convention. Mm-hmm. Um, the adventure should be written to have the plot wrap up after one session, uh, and it usually shouldn't take too long because your players all have other things to do and you are finished. That is true. Not entirely untrue of home campaigns, but usually on a much shorter leash. Yeah. Uh, sessions can be about three to six hours, which is a common time slot for an event at a convention or at a gaming store. Uh, sometimes they can go longer, but you'll have to make sure the adventure ends before the slot does and you're kicked out. Yeah, make yeah make sure that you will have plenty of time to end and wrap things up and fill out whatever paperwork. Mm-hmm. If you're like if you're one of the Green Ronin volunteers, the freebooters, you're gonna have to file a report afterwards to let them know how the session went and what happened. Um, and so, and of course, by that point, the store is closing. You got to get everybody home. Um, yep. And of course, with things like this, there can be little to no advanced planning possible, especially if it's convention, as most players are gonna have no time to build a character. Uh, although with age, this can be a little easier than some other games. Yeah, but- Pre-gens or having them bring them ahead of time is generally the yes. way to go. Uh, players may not even know the rules for the game when they come to the table, which can, means that you can take a little extra time explaining how specific uh, mechanics come, when specific mechanics come up, like an advanced test or an opposed test, mm-hmm. or what the dra- what this off-color die does. Yeah, and if you are expecting that someone may not know the rules when they come to the mm-hmm. table, make sure that you calculate your time in for that too. So yes. make your make your actual content even shorter so that you can yes. take the time as needed shorter to not rush sweeter. along a new player. The third model of writing games is for general use or which is sometimes called modules or scenarios or just called adventures. Mhm. Um, they also usually self-contain plots, but they can be multi-parted. Uh, session length can vary depending on what the writer wants out of the adventure. Um, for example, my adventure, What Chains Are For, is meant for any PCs that are uh, levels 1 to 3 that might join the Inquisition. It's meant to be completed in 4 to 5 hours and, and, and nicely. It does include seeds for further adventure if the, GM's pl- if the GM or the players want, uh, but they are not required uh, for the adventure. they are not required for the adventure to function. So mm-hmm. that, now that's something that you can, of course, hand out to the public and use. Or if you want to write something bigger that's got like a that's got a more rising action, a big time climax, and then even maybe some stuff that teeters in after after that. Um, with general use, like module session, module scenarios, etc., you can usually have a bit more wiggle room because the adventure is going to be exactly what you want it to be. Um, and this might maybe this is an adventure you might sell for money. It's true. Sounds fun. Um, this is kind of the broadest category because it can really be just about anything. I mean, it's probably it could be longer than like an event adventure, or but it's probably going to be shorter than a full home campaign yeah. unless you're like writing a six six part uh, adventure path or something like Pathfinder does every couple of months. Mm-hmm. So it can be anywhere in there and. Um, and, you know, it, it's really up to you what you want from it, but they also are going, because it's a written adventure that doesn't have fl- a lot, of, potentially a lot of flexibility like a home game might have, unless the GM, of course, is flexible and it can adjust the adventure on the fly. So, the building blocks of your adventures. What are they? Uh, if you listen to our Encounters episode, this list may sound familiar, and it is. Encounters are a lar- smaller parts of a larger adventure, however. Um, all adventures have to have, let's see, well... Should have three things. Let's see. This one, of course, is a necessi- necessity. The first two are a necessity. The last one is more optional. Uh, the first thing they need to have is objectives. Why are the heroes going on this quest in the first place? Why are the heroes venturing into the inhospitable countryside of the Anderfels? Why are the heroes stealing a boat to sneak into Saharan? This gives your adventure momentum, something the PCs are looking to beyond the little encounters that pepper their journey towards the end. What is behind the ogre? Why are the PCs trying to discredit the Magister? Why did the PCs work so hard to get this dusty map of the Arlathan Forest? Uh, While individual encounters have smaller objectives, the adventure objective is a larger question of why that leads the PCs to pursue encounters in the first place. This is the big end goal, the light at the end of the tunnel, and it should be big enough that your heroes get out of bed. It has to hook their interest. It has Mm -hmm. to be your hook. If If it isn't, your adventure will fall flat fast. Yeah. So make sure it's nice and enticing. Uh, and you, and of course, if you've got pl- if you've got time to plan ahead, ask your players what would make a good objective. What do they want to do? Yeah, what would make these PCs? In fact, that's a great session zero moment. Yes, is definitely. to find out what you know how to build a set of PCs that mm-hmm. have similar goals. Yes, 
whether or not they have different ways of getting to them. Mm-hmm. But if they all have similar goals, then it's going to be much easier to keep them forming a cohesive party. Yes. Um, all adventures need to have adversity, something that is keeping the PCs from their objective. Why can't the PCs just get to the just get to the other side of the mountain already? It'd be a pretty short campaign. Correct. It'd be a very boring adventure uh, if they just have to go to market market and buy milk. You probably don't have to roll tests to do that. There's no. I mean, I guess if you need to get there really fast, you can roll a Constitution running test, but that's not very exciting. No. We're gonna need something that's stopping them from getting the milk. There's dark spot in the way. We'll go with that. I feel like the milk becomes less important. Exactly, and that's where the adventure comes from. <laughs> Uh, adversity can be villains who actively work against the heroes, traps in their way, difficult terrain they must pass, anything that makes it an adventure. Uh, this is this is an exciting part of the adventure creation process. Do not neglect the other parts. Some of the folks can get really preoccupied with this particular part, and it's fun. It's a lot mm-hmm. of fun. But the other parts should be, uh, so you should definitely make sure that they get the due attention. Yeah, if it's just adversity, it's going to get bogged down quick. Mm-hmm. Especially uh, if you're trying to tell a story. It's not going to work out too well. The third part of adventures, uh, and this is more of an uh, optional one, uh, see, but so you can have this one in with degrees, um, there is alliances. Uh, the heroes don't have to go this adventure alone. They can find friends or acquaintances that can make their adventure a little easier. Uh, in the same vein, it can be just as exciting if the PCs have no one to count on or that counting on people is dangerous in this adventure. Maybe the PCs could seek help from the Magister in their quest to find the Sword of Saharan, but what would co- what would that cost them, and what does the Magister gain from helping the PCs? These are generally not adversaries in the adventure, but elements that can adjust the difficulty of the journey. Uh, the PCs may choose some alliances and not others due to personal preference or tactical reasons, but they should definitely have an effect on the adventure. Allying with the more cutthroat Antivan merchant prince may mean that the heroes can get into the gala easily, but only if they kill someone for the prince while they are there. Now, the heroes could have gone, heroes could have gone with the entrepreneur merchant prince who helps the poor, but his relatively smaller success means that representing him makes it more difficult for the PCs to get into the gala. Decisions, so, decisions. Decisions, decisions. And, of course, decisions are very important to Dragon Age. Absolutely. So keep those in mind. Keep all those in mind when you're making your adventures, and also definitely keep in mind your theme. With all the separate pieces of adversaries, traps, hazards, advanced tests, your narrative, your friendly NPCs, anything else you have in your adventure, they all should work for each other. Try to select a theme or a genre for your adventures to adhere to, and try to stay within the boundaries of that theme. Uh, this helps your adventure feel consistent and helps the players create an expectation. Um, howling barbarians attacking your PCs would be a bit of a shock if they were expecting an adventure of intrigue and political maneuvering. Yeah. Um, this is not to say you should be completely bound by theme, but more to say that your adventure will create an expectation when you present it and begin it. Your encounters should meet that expectation and should go a little farther than the players expect. Yeah, suspect. it's kind of like when you're cooking. You you know, mm-hmm. there are certain ingredients that mix well together and mm-hmm. certain ingredients that... Yes. ...will be jarring. And do that, mm-hmm. you know, keep that in mind when you're cooking up an adventure. Yes. Uh, For example, an adventure in the glittering streets of Valreo has a few expected kinds of obstacles. Scheming rivals who wish to see the PCs discredited. Assassins hired by rivals who wish to see the PCs dead. Disgruntled peasants, or even the Red Jennies, unhappy with their lot in life, taking it out on your PCs. Deadly traps placed to keep secrets secret. Obtuse documents and overflowing libraries that the PCs must mine to find dirt on their rivals. Old-fashioned social rules like succession and inheritance. More monstrous foes can be exotic pets that the PC the NPCs keep in their story. Uh, so that is all stuff worth keeping in mind, is that um, when you pick a theme, stick to it. Mm-hmm. Make sure that all of the adventures, when you kind of, you could say, I mean, they can have multiple flavors within the same theme, but make sure that it all kind of matches, that it all, you know, it's all color matching. Yeah. Um, now, how to make it have that Dragon Age feel in particular? Um, which is important. Dragon Age is a dark fantasy, not quite as dark as some other settings, but it does have some assumptions. Um, these are listed on pages 233 and 234 of the core rulebook, but we're going to add a couple bits. Uh, we'll go we'll go through them and add some of our own suggestions. Uh, no unicorns and rainbows. Dragon Age yep. is not a kind world. While you shouldn't hammer that into your PCs with your flavor text illustrating every corpse, injustice, or pain the people face, you should remind the PCs that Pathetus is not a kind place every now and then. Small vignettes can help you drive home the difficult world Thetis is. Pain in the backstory of an NPC can help you move that narrative when those imperfect and hurting characters make a bad decision that sets the PCs back a step. Mm -hmm. Just be careful and be aware when you are Mm -hmm. 
taking ex- you know negative experiences that could have been experienced by even your players and then making them background dressing because that can also be delegitimizing. So yes, again, definitely. this is something we've talked about a million times. Just talk mm. with your players. Be very careful. Yes, be please respectful. Do. Uh, and definitely remember, life isn't fair. This is something you should write on the board behind you. Make sure the players know this going in as well. Thetis is not a world that will take care of them, and your adventures should occasionally remind the players that while you are playing a game, even the rules do not ensure that the PCs will be easily within the level range of their next level of their next threat. That's true. The hazardous pit may have quite a few more d6s of penetrating damage than your players are expecting, and that ogre may have a heroic adjustment given uh, to give it that extra oomph that makes it just a little too much for the heroes. They may have to choose discretion over valor. You shouldn't be afraid to put the hurt on your PCs, but don't be mean to just be mean. Yeah, it's um, not it's not you versus them. Correct. It's the world versus them. Yeah. Make sure that Thetis is the one punching you know, punching your punching up at your PCs, not. Let's see, does that make sense? No. Does that make sense at all? No. Make sure Thetis is punching your PCs and not you. Yes. You're telling a story. Yes. Thetis is just kind of a mm-hmm. place. Thetis is your theme. Uh, the age system is purposefully difficult to exactly balance for these reasons, and it can keep the game delightfully unpredictable. So use that to your advantage. Mm-hmm. Uh, actions have consequences. This one this is pretty is important. A, this is a big one for mm-hmm. Dragon Age, oh, especially. Yeah. Dragon Age is all about big, hefty choices. Do you ally with the mages, or do you ally with the Templars? There will be consequences either way. Butterfly mm-hmm. effect is a very real thing in Dragon Age. Very much so. Uh, it's in, you are going to make choices that can save lives, annul circles, decide the course of Thetis in Dragon Age 4. Not every adventure should have, big cho- should have big choices with dire outcomes. Most adventures should clearly present the PCs with choices, because it's very mm-hmm. Dragon Age. One thing that we have enjoyed... In our group, because we also have players and characters who like to be a bit master of their own destiny, mm-hmm. is that, you know, having two options that are obviously unsatisfying, but mm-hmm. are choices, yes. and one more satisfying option that is significantly harder and could result in player death. Like, I do like oh, that Character one. death, not player death. Oh, man. That oh, could man. be really bad. That's intense. But yeah, the one that is... The one that would end in a, like, desired outcome mm-hmm. is intensely difficult and requires both skill and luck. Yes. I am always a big fan of doing those. Uh, sometimes evil wears a smile. The kind of, the PCs should not necessarily trust everybody they meet in Thetis, because not everybody in Thetis can be trusted. It is inevitable that their faith will sometimes be... Misplaced. Misplaced. Mm-hmm. Title drop. So, uh, goodness. Sometimes, you know, you should make sure that your characters know that, um, as we said with those alliances earlier, that not everything is, not everything should be as it seems. And that uh, people, of course, here all have their own needs and their own, their own, and their own wants. Uh, and if the PCs are in the way of that want, then betrayal can happen in an instant. Mm-hmm. Maybe that nice, uh, that nice merchant prince who mm-hmm. is kind to the poor. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's only able to afford to do that because he's selling elven slaves on the side. Picking, I had to pick one. I couldn't save them both. Yeah, I'm just saying that's that's totally the kind of thing that would happen in a Dragon Age oh, game. Man, ouch. Yeah, that that's good. That's good. Yeah, I have to write some of these down. Um, you did. You wrote most of them down. I did. Uh, and finally, raising the banner of hope. And I think mm-hmm. this is probably my favorite one because I Me think too. it's extremely important. Um, this is a, set, a this is a you know a, a setting with a lot of doom and gloom. Mm-hmm. People are there's a lot of injustice. There's a lot of there's huge wage gaps. People are and see people are stepped on all the time. Atrocities everywhere. Atrocities everywhere. The dark spawn are an act that is directly born out of human see out of human uh, hubris. Yeah. Uh, humanity's hubris is, has tried to destroy the entire world five times. It's it's a bad scene. Mm-hmm. The thing about raising the banner of hope is that your characters are here to do that. That yep. should be that should be the idea is that things are not okay. That is what your heroes are here to fix. It not necessarily well, you could destroy play a jerk, evil. I guess. You could, I guess, if you wanted to. Um, I particularly personally like dark fantasy for being the beacons of light. Uh, yes. It's being the beacons of light in that dark fantasy. Makes a better balance. Definitely. 
So, keep all those things in mind when you're writing your adventures. Uh, and of course, uh, we mentioned uh, themes and genres. There are a couple of genres that you can sneak into uh, Dragon Age, so keep them in mind. Dungeon crawls, of course. There's lots of dungeons in Dragon Age. It's, uh, there's, uh, and you can go through the dungeons of uh, Anarl's castle. You can uh, find a bunch of elven ruins. Mm-hmm. So, classical stuff. Go for it. Um, war is a very available genre. There's a lot of historical wars that you can play out, and of course, uh, maybe reenacting the Dragon Age origins. And you're trying to, so you're here to fight the Blight. You're here to collect uh, allies to fight against it, and eventually you have a big clash at the end. Um, intrigue is very popular for campaigns into Winter or in Venetia or in Orlay. Uh, I guess you can do it in Ferelden too. Or Antiva. Or in De- or Really, pretty Antiva. much everywhere that isn't Ferelden is pretty rife with intrigue. And Ferelden mm. has its own share. Just it's a little bit, but. Not to the same degree as these Mm-mm. places. Mm-mm. Uh, and horror. The Dark Spot are pretty scary. And there are, th- and there are plenty of ghosts and undead to spook your PCs with. Mm hmm. So keep all those in mind. Uh, pick a theme, stick with it, build your stuff around it, make sure that all the parts work together. Um, now we're going to get into some more general advice. Um, keep things interesting and watch your pacing. Avoid the temptation to add extra encounters just because you can. Uh, and make sure that you look at the encounters you present from a bird's eye view. Each encounter can have effect, have an effect on the pace of the adventure. Combats tend to take the longest as they are the most rule-intensive of the game. If every room that your PCs are going into has another fight, especially with a lot of similar enemies, that's going to get boring real fast. It's going to take forever. Well, this room's got uh, three skeletons in it, and this one's got two more skeletons in it. We get, you'll never guess what's in the next room. So, and even if you vary it up with stuff like that, and you're going to want to really... This skeleton has flesh on it. Yes. It's a zombie. It's a zamb. So... Vary it up a little bit, especially with combats, and make sure. And combats can slog a little bit occasionally, especially if the players are new or uh, if they've got new abilities to try and out. So keep in mind, uh, especially sometimes with combats, sometimes less is more. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to make the just make a couple those combats that you do have all the more special with special mechanics. Maybe the enemies have got specific gear, things like that. Um, Role-playing can vary in length wildly, depending on your group's desire to engage with NPCs or their propensity to get really into character. Some players really love to have the spotlight on and become the junior thespian. Uh, And some players just don't get into role-play. It's just not their cup of tea. And both of those are perfectly fine, but you are going to have to keep in mind uh, whether or not the... It's whether or not, you know, the characters that really like to roleplay are making the roleplaying encounter last a long time, and the folks who don't like it are just kind of hanging out. Mm-hmm. The adventure's going to get boring for them. So keep in mind, uh, you know, roleplaying encounters usually have a fairly straightforward objective. Just, you don't have to write a novel when you're, when you're doing a roleplaying mm-hmm. encounter. That can be fun if you've got the time and the players are into it. But generally, again, less is more. And especially with roleplay, mm-hmm. if you give little seeds for your players to investigate, mm-hmm. and you've got a group that, you know, make sure your group is set at a similar level of desire for various levels of roleplay, mm-hmm. but you give them seeds to investigate, then they can build a lot of the roleplay themselves. That's true. And if they're building the encounter, they're not even going to notice how long it's going. Yep. They're just going to have fun. True. Um, exploration can be a welcome break from the first two, because usually they're not quite as involved because you're not directly role-playing with the GM and you're not having to do, you don't have to keep an eye on an initiative and track your health. Um, you can usually move a little faster. The hero's just telling you where they're going, uh, what they're examining, and rolling tests against things like hazards and traps when they move to a specific part of the map. So... Definitely, see, role playing and combat encounters are exciting. Although they can, see, they can be like good, like high points of action. Sprinkle in some exploration encounters because those can get forgotten pretty easily. Um, they're much easier to do in things with like uh, wilderness exploration or dungeon crawls because you're going to be looking for things like traps uh, or looking for things like treasure. But sprinkle them in to kind of to give the give it a bit of a beat 
uh, you know, high action, and then maybe uh, quiet. And see, maybe you, you fight a bunch of assassins in the in the foyer, and then you quietly move through the kitchen. You find a couple of clues, maybe to what's going on around here. Uh, and then when you go into the dining room, whoa, there's another fight. Or let's see, surprise. Or maybe the villain is waiting there at the end of the table for you, wishes to have a conversation. So. Keep that, all that stuff in mind. All of these are going to affect the pace. The pace can have a profound effect on whether the players are paying attention. Um, and for all of these, really, it's a, a, a less is more. Mm-hmm. Uh, choosing target numbers. There is a bit of a philosophy here that I have. When the, uh, You should memorize the table on page 213 and internalize the target numbers and their expected difficulty. With 7 being a routine test, with 21 becoming a nigh-impossible test. Uh, usually goes up by two. Just keep them all in mind. Uh, it'll make things n- not only go faster when you need to just decide a target number right away, but if you're assigning target numbers and like writing down stuff for an adventure, it can inform you a bit. You're going to be choosing a lot of target numbers as you write an adventure. Uh, and see, and especially when you have to create more when you know, the PCs come up with stuff that you didn't expect them to do. Mm. Um, yeah. So keep that spread on page 213 in mind. Uh, let's see, and, but if you have access to the character sheets of the PCs, you can further refine your target numbers to be within acceptable ranges of your party's capabilities. Mm-hmm. Usually no more than, like, 10 plus their modifier. Well, you can definitely do more than that to make it more difficult, but just keep in mind that with like a with 3d6s, there's a bell curve for how much yeah. your uh, results are. Getting an 18 or a 3 is extremely rare. The most common rolls on 3d6s are 9, 10, and 11. So that's going to be the general vicinity of where most rolls are going to fall. You know, results may vary. Mm-hmm. These are dice. We can't, we can't expect them to fall within the parameters. Even if we've got percentages, we can't really count on that. But it's a good benchmark to work with. Um, it's generally a good idea to set target numbers lower than you think you need them to be. Uh, for those of you with the luxury of having access to the sheets of the heroes, you can feel free to break this rule to make the adventure a bit more fine-tuned. But if you're writing in it like for an event or something you want to publish, you're not going to know what the PCs are capable of unless you have pregens. Um, in this case, it's usually best to lower your expectations for the PCs' abilities because you can't guarantee that the players have the necessary tools or experience or even the right character classes to do what you need them to do. Mm-hmm. So keep those things in mind. Um, next, play to your audience. And we've touched on this a little bit. Uh, if you're writing an adventure for your players, especially a home campaign, ask them what they want to play. That's that, that's going to, of course, greatly inf- influence what you're writing. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're writing something for an event, you can hopefully expect people who come to play it are fans of Dragon Age and can use something classically Dragon Age like Grey Wardens, the Darkspawn, Orlesian Politics, Deventer Snobbery, the Antiven Crows, or an adventure at Orzammar to entice fans of the games to come join in. If the players don't know anything about Dragon Age, you can still use all of those uh, to uh, work within the genres that Dragon There's Age There's reason with. those things are popular. Exactly, yeah. They brought people in, they might bring those folks in too. So... Let's see, uh, know who you're. Let's see, know generally who you're writing for, and try to write for them. Mm-hmm. And if, but of course, write for yourself. Write an adventure that you want to write as well. Just you know, you might have to give and take a little bit. Um, plan ahead if you can, especially if you've got a home campaign. Uh, if you have an idea or two, have an idea or two about how the adventure can end, and plan what might happen should either of those possibilities come to pass, uh, or if any of them, if you have myriad possibilities um if the heroes uh, throw you an odd ending roll with it or you can just reframe the outcomes you had in mind uh to the new ending if you can but try to be a couple steps ahead so that you know uh especially if you if the pacing works really well and you get to the adventure really snappily and quick then you're going to need to know what goes on next Mm -hmm. um and a very important thing to say about writing dragon age adventures is the issue of canon and I think that this uh, stifles a lot of people, is that they say, I want to write a, uh, an adventure about Dragon Age, but I don't know what I can do. Do not feel bound by what is in the games and the books. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a few rules that it is wise to keep so that the game remains Dragon Age-esque, which is, you know, the stuff that we mentioned earlier, and, like, the limitations of magic, yep. uh, which we I believe we talked about in our magic episode already. We talked about it a couple times. Yeah. Uh, but you should Can't teleport, can't bring people back. Weird examples, ex- weird yeah. exceptions exist, Can't but really not usually. Can't really walk into the fade. Magic items don't get to break the rules. 
Um, except when these things happen. Except when the rules are broken. Uh, you should not see them as ironclad, because the designers of Dragon Age do not see them as ironclad. Uh, some of the best stories of Dragon Age have come about when those rules are broken. Um, yep. And when you examine what has helped to break those rules. That said, they're, they're good sort of pillars for you. Yes. As you are building your game. Mm. And, to help keep it Dragon yeah, Age. Even though you've got, you know... And see, Dragon Age has also been seeded quite well by the designers because they, they assumed that they'd probably be writing in this world for a long time. So pick up that World of Thetis book, or both of those Worlds of Thetis books. They've got a lot of stuff hiding in there that you can just be like, okay, these folks went super far east and they found a really weird culture of dwarves uh, trading on ships. Let's go with that. See where that takes us. Mm-hmm. Um... Examples to work with, uh, so that you can see what a written adventure looks like and what you can perhaps expect from writing your own campaigns, there are plenty of examples to work with already. Uh, there are, of course, if you have the core rulebook, there are three adventures in the back. Uh, there's a low-level adventure in Valrayo about the illegal lyrium trade. There's a mid-level adventure where the heroes take part in the Grand Tourney. And there's a high-level adventure where the heroes save a Ferelden, save a Ferelden town from a miniature blight. You know, little things. Yeah. Um... Of course, there's Blood and Ferelden, which is still on sale for cheap, but bundle the holding. Uh, it's got three low-level adventures, can take the pieces from levels 1 to 5, and they're all written so that they can actually make a pretty decent like low-level campaign. Uh, and the back is filled with adventure seeds. Uh, Titan's Grave, you can take a look at that. Uh, the st- some of the stuff that comes in later is um, more fantasy age focused but i mean they're pretty much the same game you can look at them both you can look at them all and mm-hmm. get an idea for it um of course as to how to obtain it see above bag of hunts a bundle of holding um an example that i haven't gotten to take a look at yet but i'd like to uh is the six of swords book which is a blue rose adventure collection um i think there's like six adventures and they go anywhere from like low level adventures to high level adventures i'm very curious to see what's in it uh, and, of course, there's the Fantasy Age Encounters, which are also in the bundle of holding. Only three of them. There's a fourth one, I believe, and they're really uh, really quick and uh, quick and dirty encounters to take a look at, and you can just plop them into a campaign. They could probably all mostly work for a Dragon Age campaign as well. You just might have to remove things like halflings and orcs, because we don't have those in Dragon Age, but that's easy to do. Mm-hmm. Ooh, man. Honestly, this topic is way too big for a, for a, one episode, so if you want us to come back and talk about this some more or talk about something more specific, please let us know. We'd love to hear about it. Yeah, if we need to go into depth about some of these things more in ways that we mm-hmm. haven't already, that sounds like a good thing you could send us as a question mm-hmm. or comment. Mm-hmm. So thank you, of course, for listening to the Wonders of Thetis podcast. Thanks you for coming on this adventure with us. There it is. <laughs> there it is. Uh, this is Ren wishing lots of sixes on that dragon die. And this is Jessica wishing you good heels and happy feels. Thank you so much for listening to the Wonders of Thetis podcast. Catch you next time. Have Bye. a good one.